0: It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's uh, satellite symposium. This symposium is sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals and is entitled Identifying, Managing, and Treating Patients with Nash and Significant Fibrosis, Current Practice and Future Perspectives. And I think that really is the key thing here. We need to consider how we are managing patients at the moment, how we can advance that, and where we need to be to deliver care to our patients in the most effective way. We've got a phenomenal group of speakers going to be joining us this evening. So after I've talked for a little while, Professor Jean Schattenberg from the University of Mainz will be talking, and then Professor Stephen Harrison from Pinnacle Research in the United States, and also a visiting chair at Oxford University. So I think over the course of the next hour or so, we're really going to dive into some of the key features related to fatty liver disease. In terms of how we're going to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit first of all about some of the tools that may be available to help us identify patients, but also particularly to ask the question, are we doing enough to identify the patients most likely to come to harm? Then I'll pass the baton on to Jean. He's going to talk about managing patients with NASH and significant fibrosis, what we can do now, where the future is. And then finally, Stephen is going to take a deeper dive into the treatment of patients with NASH and significant fibrosis and really look forward to see what the future holds for us. So let's start off then with some thought about are we identifying the right patients and how we are doing that. We're all very familiar with the nature of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I don't think there's anybody in this audience who is not comfortable with the idea that we start with a normal liver. As fat accumulates, we develop steatosis, which can be described as non-alcoholic fatty liver. The next step is the development of inflammation, and that's the steatohepatitis. And it's characterized by lobular inflammation and ballooning hepatocyte degeneration. And then, as damage accrues in the liver, we start to develop an aberrant wound healing response and slowly increasing stages of fibrosis going through, ultimately, to lead to cirrhosis in a number of individuals. We're also very clear that the background to this is metabolic stress driven by obesity and insulin resistance. In terms of outcomes, we're beginning to get greater clarity on the natural history. We know that many individuals will progress right the way through to cirrhosis, and indeed, a significant minority may even go on and to develop hepatocellular carcinoma. And there have been some retrospective studies here. So one I'm highlighting here, approximately 300 individuals with NAFLD, um, 300,000 individuals with in NAFLD, 500 of those individuals went on to develop um, cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. And that's a key threat that we need to consider. So one of the challenges we face as clinicians is how can we identify the people most likely to make that journey because, They are a key minority in the population. And then what can we do to prevent that actually happening? We know that there are a number of risk factors for fatty liver disease progression. The first and the most obvious is that the more features of the metabolic syndrome an individual has, the more likely they are to have steatohepatitis, the more likely they are to have progressive fibrosis. And so we can really count those off on our fingers. But there are a constellation of other conditions that are also associated with greater likelihood of fatty liver disease, greater likelihood of steatohepatitis, and progression. And I'm highlighting here polycystic ovaries, which, as we know, are associated with insulin resistance, hypothyroidism, obstructive sleep apnea, etc. In terms of epidemiology, fatty liver disease is estimated to affect approximately a quarter of the population in most countries where it's been studied. And you can see that very nicely demonstrated here. When we look at the subset of individuals with type 2 diabetes, that prevalence goes up dramatically, somewhere in the order of between 55 and 60%, and higher than that in certain territories. And similarly, when we look at the individuals who have obesity, once again, this is a target-rich environment in terms of finding individuals with fatty liver disease. And we as clinicians always need to be aware of where we're going to be finding these uh, patients so that we can really target our use of diagnostic tools to the right patients. We've seen data published in the last few weeks suggesting that general population screening is probably a step too far. But moving in to certain groups with high risk, such as obesity and diabetes, is clearly valid. In terms of recent real-world studies to look at prevalence, I can't think of a better study than the one Steve Harrison produced in the United States. Now, this was a cohort in the U.S. Veterans Administration. 664 individuals were screened, and approximately 37% of those individuals, so just over a third of them, had evidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And of those individuals... 14% had steatohepatitis. So we're already getting a clue that there is a significant burden of this potentially progressive form of the disease in the population. And once again, in individuals with obesity or type 2 diabetes, that prevalence went up substantially. This other study I'm showing you here on the right hand side is a slightly different take on that. So this was using very basic non-invasive tools to try to ascertain. The amount of fatty liver disease in a general population in France, just using the fatty liver index and then the Fawn score to look for advanced fibrosis. But the message here is that individuals with greater degrees of fibrosis are more likely to experience cardiovascular disease, hepatic disease, and other extrahepatic conditions. So once again, we are getting a strong message here that it is. These individuals we need to find. And similarly, I've just come downstairs from presenting data using the FIB4 score, where, once again, we're seeing a prognostic signal going forward. And so based on that, it's no surprise that the EASL guidelines suggest that the progressive form of fatty liver disease, in other words, NASH, particularly when it's associated with advanced fibrosis, should be identified in groups of individuals who are at risk. So in other words, individuals over the age of 50, people with type 2 diabetes, people with a metabolic syndrome. And the reason for that is because of its clear prognostic implications of making that diagnosis. The challenge we face, of course, is that we can't go out and biopsy everybody. It's not a scalable tool. And so we rely on a range of different non-invasive tests that help us to identify individuals, particularly those with fibrosis where we can home in on our treatment. And I'm going to break this down into those which are blood tests and those which are, if you like, imaging-based or um, elastography-based tools. So first of all, thinking about the blood tests, we have a range of what are called simple markers. Now, these are indirect markers of liver disease. They're relying on changes in transaminases, drops in platelet count, suggesting development of portal hypertension, or the synthetic function of the liver. And a classic example of that would be the FIB4 index, which we know is a very good, simple tool for ruling out advanced fibrosis. And then we have the specialist tools. And here we can hone in on specific biomarkers, or we can look at them in a, a basket together. So an example of that would be the ELF test, which is mice approved in the United Kingdom. And we have this balance with all these tests. There are those tests that are high availability and low cost, such as the FIB4 score and then this gradation as you go up with diminishing availability and potentially higher cost. And so we need to find a way of focusing in to use a low-cost test to begin with before we move on to tests such as Fibroscan, VCTE, or a number of these other tools that can help us to provide additional information. How do the blood tests perform? Well, the more eagle eyed of you will spot that the Aerox here are approximately similar for all of these individuals. Most of the non-invasive biomarkers that we have have high negative predictive value. They're very useful for ruling out advanced disease. And that is in itself a really important goal. Because when we're faced with a very large at-risk population, if we can safely say that this group we don't need to worry about anymore, that really helps us in terms of what we do. Then, of course, we need a follow-on test to help us focus down a little bit further. A Classic example of that, and one that is widely used um, internationally, is VCTE, FibroScan. Now, this gives us two pieces of information. The first is liver stiffness that tells us about scarring of the liver. The second is CAP, which is a measurement of the amount of fat in the liver. And you can see here some very nice data from a UK study demonstrating how fibrosis stages increase steadily in greater liver stiffness, and similarly, So we can also see greater increases in the amount of fat in the liver as the cap goes up. So that's one useful tool. The other end of the spectrum is MR elastography and MRI PDFF. Now, MRI PDFF is, without a doubt, the most accurate way of quantifying fat in the liver. But of course, very high cost, very resource intensive. And that is one of the challenges in terms of particularly socialized healthcare systems, where you've got to balance an effective tool with the cost it would take. But a very useful tool for this, and similarly, MRS elastography, very useful, and increasingly being used in clinical trials where we're wanting to non-invasively look for therapeutic response. So these are important techniques that we need to know about, even if we don't have them necessarily available to us in our own hospitals. So how can we put these together? Well, there have been a number of algorithms that have been proposed. To, to look at this, here I'm showing you the, the easel algorithm. Um, and I'll show you a couple of others because they all basically have the same idea. The first step is to identify risk. So think about those individuals with greater features of the metabolic syndrome your overweight individuals, your diabetic individuals. Then calculate the Fib4 score. If it's a low Fib4 score, less than 1.3, we have a very high negative predictive value. These individuals can be given lifestyle advice, but probably don't need to be referred on further unless there is another cause for concern. Individuals with a Fib4 greater than 1.3, however, that's when we bring out our second-line test. And commonly, a test like Fibroscan VCTE is used to assess liver stiffness. The ELF guidelines suggest that if the Fibroscan shows a liver stiffness of less than 8 kilopascals, once more, we can be reassured We still need to deliver lifestyle change, but it is very unlikely that that individual has advanced fibrosis. But when it's greater than 8 kilopascals, that's when we need to come on with follow-up investigations to focus down, for example, considering liver biopsies in a specific group of individuals. What I'm showing you here is a very nice study done by Jerome Boisier and Angers, looking at a large cohort of individuals and modelling out the performance and the outcomes of these individuals. And what you can see is that if that FIB4 score is less than 1.3, that individual is at a very low risk of an adverse outcome, very similar to what I showed in the UK CPRD data about an hour ago. However, if the FIB4 score is greater than 1.3, we need to do additional testing. Here, once again, Jerome looked at FibroScan. Very nicely, when the liver stiffness is less than 8 kilopascals, Those individuals are not at substantially higher risk than those who have a a Fib4 of less than 1.3. And so once again, we can have confidence they're unlikely to come to harm in the next two to three years. However, as the fibrous scan stiffness increases 8 to 12 or greater than 12, the chance of an adverse outcome steadily increases. And those are the individuals who need referral on to liver specialist review, and potentially further investigation, and potentially, as drugs become available, further treatments. I'm just putting this one up. This is actually what we do in my clinic in Newcastle. Very much the same thing. The only difference I would highlight to you is that we use age-specific cutoffs for the FIB4 score. So the classic cutoff of 1.3 is very effective. However, once individuals get over the age of 65 years, you find that that performance begins to degrade. And you get an increasing number of false positives with the FIB4 score. So we've published this a couple of years ago in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. But in individuals under the age of 65, we use the classic cutoff of 1.3 for FIB4. In individuals over the age of 65, we actually use a cutoff of 2 for FIB4 because that improves the, uh, or reduces the risk of false positive tests without adversely missing a large number of patients. So something to bear in mind. But the rest of that pathway is very much similar. So with that locked in our minds, what I'd like to do now is just quickly talk through a case and highlight a few points from you. So this is a 49-year-old lady who's presented by her primary care physician with abnormal liver function tests. She came in for a well-person checkup. was noted at that time to have mildly abnormal liver function tests, and the general practitioner has written to ask, should I stop the statin? Is this statin-related toxic injury? In terms of the history of presenting complaint, the patient feels generally well, maybe a little bit of fatigue, which is not uncommon. She's not a big drinker, maybe a couple of units of alcohol a week at most. She's known to have dyslipidemia, for which she's on a statin, a torvostatin at 20 milligrams once daily. She has diet controlled diabetes, but she's on no other pills. On examination, entirely unremarkable other than that the patient is overweight. You send off some blood tests, you order an ultrasound scan. The ultrasound scan shows increased fat in the liver, it's brighter than the kidney parenchyma, so the liver is diffusely echogenic, consistent with fatty liver disease. But the rest of the blood tests aren't particularly uh, exciting. Full blood count, very much within the normal range. PT not elevated, LFTs, there's nothing here that particularly jumps off the page at you. But the patient does have multiple features of the metabolic syndrome. They're dyslipidemic, they're diabetic, they're overweight. So this is somebody who is undoubtedly at risk of further liver disease. So if we follow our algorithm, we've identified the risk, we've excluded other causes, so we've checked for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, et cetera, They're not part of the picture. So we move on and we calculate the FIB4 score. And this individual comes out with a FIB4 score of 1.49, so in that indeterminate zone. And if we look at it, when we look at the data, we're beginning to see the reason why. So if we look at the ALT to AST ratio here, we know that as fatty liver disease progresses towards cirrhosis, the ALT level tends to fall and the AST level tends to rise. And so you get a reversal of that ALT to AST ratio. And here, even though both of those are within the normal range, that ratio has reversed. So that's a little warning sign to us. The FIB4 score is in that indeterminate zone. So we go on and do a fibroscan. scan, 10.4 kilopascals, a lot of fat in that liver as well, um, 345 decibels for cap, a very fatty liver. And we go on and do a biopsy, and once again, What we're seeing here is an individual with an active steatohepatitis and advanced liver fibrosis, f F3 fibrosis. These are those occult patients who we don't automatically see. And unless we are aware of the potential metabolic risks, they are the individuals who we risk missing. So that begs the question, are we doing enough to find patients like that? There have been a number of studies recently, which I I just want to highlight on this one to you. It started off with a a very elegant study, part of a collaboration I had with Jeff Lazarus a a number of years ago, where we looked at readiness in the guidelines across Europe, um, and we found that there was not a single country in Europe where there was a government-approved policy to address the challenge of fatty liver disease. More recently, as we've expanded that study to 102 countries, We've identified only 32 of those countries actually have clinical guidelines for fatty liver disease. And worryingly, where we consider the guidelines for, for example, diabetes or obesity management or dyslipidemia, very seldom is fatty liver disease even mentioned in those guidelines. And so we have a piece of education and dialogue we need to do with our colleagues in these other specialties. They're very focused on really important other aspects of end organ damage, but we're not yet Addressing that one and this is one of the things we need to think about the second one is that there appears to be a disconnect between the guidelines and What we're doing on the shop floor So the guidelines give us very clear ideas about how we should be triaging patients how we should be identifying them But when we look into real-world evidence, we can see that there is a frequent disconnect there and that's not translating into the evidence we, we would like, the actions we need to see. There's also clear data suggesting that without the use of non invasive tools, even very highly trained, competent physicians will underestimate the severity of liver disease. So, this is a paper that was published a few years ago. There's recently been a number of studies looking at real world evidence cohorts that have demonstrated very much the same thing this disconnect. If we don't do the right tests, we will fool ourselves and falsely reassure our patients. Very nice study from Ken Kuzi, more of an opinion piece, really, highlighting this fact to the diabetic community, that there are a large number of individuals within those diabetic clinics who have advanced disease, and they are not yet having that addressed. So to conclude, fatty liver disease is highly prevalent, largely asymptomatic, and characterized by substantial interpatient variation. Patients with NASH and clinically significant fibrosis or cirrhosis have a high unmet need, and those are individuals we need to be actively seeking out because they are likely to come to harm. We need to remember that often at present, it is only an incidental finding when these cases are identified, and we need to be more systematic in that risk identification and then stratification. And we do have effective, non-invasive tools, such as Fib4, such as FibroScan, that we can use in our clinic to help us achieve that. With that, I'll thank you for your attention. We'll be back for some discussions in a little while. And I'll pass you over to my colleague, uh, John Schattenberg, for the next part.